0: Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 369th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, which is brought to you by Hulu and Neon, presenting Palm Springs, starring Andy Samberg, Kristen Milioti, and J.K. Simmons, for your consideration in all categories. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a multi-talented young actress who I, like many, have grown to adore. Over a decade in the business, she has made memorable impressions on TV series such as Shameless, Suburgatory, and What If, and in films including Evil Dead and Don't Breathe. But she has taken things to a whole different level as the lead of NBC's musical dramedy series Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, playing the title character who... While grappling with a personal tragedy at home, develops the ability to hear other people's innermost thoughts in the form of musical numbers, and also does some singing and dancing of her own. Jane Levy. Over the course of our conversation, the 31-year-old and I discuss her years-long journey to becoming an overnight sensation, the sorts of pressures and inappropriate behavior to which young actresses continue to be subjected, even in the Me Too era, What it's like being at the center of a show that is as grueling to make as Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, the second season of which just began rolling out, and also why, at a time when musical theater is otherwise not available, the show is as important as ever, plus much more. And so, without further ado,
1: let's go to that conversation. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW, Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Jane,
0: thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you and always begin with just a few basics on this one. If you can share a little bit about where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living.
2: I was born in Santa Monica, California, I moved. Exotic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I moved to the Bay Area, though, when I was an infant. So I think I was six or nine months old when my parents moved to Marin County, which is across the Golden Gate Bridge. My dad was a lawyer. He has since then um, transferred to doing mediation work. Mm
1: -hmm. He does
2: mostly Mm -hmm. environmental and human rights law. And my mother is a florist she has a flower business with her sister uh, her sister grows the flowers it's all homegrown grown and point raised and my mom is the bouquet maker <laughs> she's that's the awesome. arranger that's great yeah and they have a nice. farmer's market in west marin and
0: yeah yeah oh awesome and uh siblings
2: i have an older brother he's three years older than me
0: mm-hmm.
2: and he is also a lawyer and he lives in the east bay with his wife and his baby
0: so if uh, if people are catching on, there are a few strange parallels between you and Zoe, which we will come to. But just uh, fun to fun to realize that. So obviously curious to know when acting—forget about professional acting, but just performing of one sort or another—first crossed the radar. I read that it may have started on the toilet. Is this?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean. There are photographs of me as a very, very, very small child. Like, I would say one years old. Uh, I guess that's a baby. That's not a child. <laughs> Where I'm, you know, po- you can't I can't describe to you exactly how I was posing <laughs> on this podcast, but you can see me right now. Like, yes, I've I've always been a performer, which is actually something I'm realizing in my older age is something that I was embarrassed of when I was not as a kid, I was, I I was a kid. And so I just loved Mm -hmm. performing and, and I wanted attention and, you know, I loved it. And then when I was a teenager and a young adult, I was kind of embarrassed by my need and desire and love for and of performing. But when I was little, I, I knew that acting was something that i wanted to do and yes i i do one of my earliest memories i was sitting on the toilet don't know what i was doing on it could have been peeing could have been pooping i don't know but i could have also just been sitting there because i was a child and right. i remember calling to my mom in the kitchen with the door open and i said mom can you get me an agent can we move to la and can you get me an agent and i think she was just like you know what is she talking about this
0: is a kid how I'm do talk- you even know about that you were like six
2: Probably, maybe even four. I I think it oh was pre-kindergarten, <laughs> and my mom just I was like, "That's a kid talking nonsense." <laughs> There's nobody in my family that is in the business. My mom was not a pushy mother in any way. Neither of my parents were. I don't know. What's the opposite of like a helicopter parent? They really let me have a lot of freedom and just be a kid. And there was no part of them that was ever like trying to shape me to be an athlete or a doctor or an actor. They were like, chill out go outside. (laughs) Um, So my mom didn't get me an agent.
0: Right. Right. Now, what was or is maybe it's still going on? Yes. Theater.
2: Oh, is that so? Oh, my God. Whoa. You went deep. (laughs) Whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. You know what's so crazy is like, I don't even, okay, yes. That was, I think the theater through my school or it was through the playhouse, which was the town playhouse. And my mom, I believe actually illustrated the logo for Yes. yes. Yeah. My mom did the logo for my elementary school. She did the logo for Ojai Valley School where she went to high school and my mom or my brother went to high school. She did the logo for, I believe, yes.
0: Okay. And so this was like essentially after school acting as a kid? Yes. And now there's a thing that uh, somebody associated with Yes has put online. I don't know if you've come across this, but they were very excited that you are an alumnus who has gone on to do good things. Uh, but basically they remembered you as, you know, an enthusiastic performer, even as a kid. And I guess it seemed like you were really committed to, to this, and then something happened. like as you get into high school, where you just like dropped it. What was that?
2: Do you know this person's name? Does, is there like
0: I, I'm going to find it for you. Okay. I'm going to find it for you. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, and okay. So I was always like a precocious kid. I skipped a grade. I was always eager to do something else. School was boring to me. I was actually saying this to my friend last night. Um, where I I don't. I don't like the school setting. I don't like sitting in a classroom. I've I've learned actually being an actor that I'm somebody who really needs to do something in order to learn it, and I'm I have a lot of energy, and I'm impatient, and I'm not good at taking. Dir- I'm oh, I was supposed to go to say, I'm not good at taking direction. I don't, don't, if you're listening and you're a director, I'm really good at taking direction. No, I mean like I as a kid, I just didn't want to be told what to do. You know, so in high school, I was like. Uh, You know, I was confused, and I was angry, and I was, like, screwing off, and I was having fun, and I just, I I don't know. I didn't have, like, a purpose, but I was like, I'm going to, although, you know, people are many things, and I would skip school, but I also got good grades, but I also was, like, hanging out with the bad kids, but I was also captain of the soccer team, (laughs) When I say all this, I'm like, I sound so annoying.
0: <laughs> no, this is... Uh, um, it's, it's interesting.
2: But, yeah, I, I and I also didn't get along with my drama teacher. So, David Smith, if you're listening, <laughs> you gave me a B and I got an A in every other class except for drama, even though you cast me as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. What was that about?
0: So, me- <laughs> up yours, David.
2: <laughs> no, I'm sure he had, like, a good reason, you know? Like, maybe I was just a jerk and he was trying to I don't know. Reform
0: you. Yeah. Yeah. But you were you weren't just a like member of the team. You were a good athlete, right? That was part of something that even continued into college.
2: Yes, I I um, take everything that I do really seriously. And I'm when I decide to do do something, I commit to it like all the way. So with (laughs) sports, it's like the it's like the most like clear cut way to commit to something. You know, you just like exercise and like try to be a good team member and like it's funny because I am naturally like competitive in a way that I think is probably like like a healthy amount of competitive I hope but like I never when I played soccer I wasn't interested in winning I was always interested in being the best that I could be and being the best teammate that I could be
0: well so just to geographically situate people at, at this point when you're in high school, you're still on the West coast, right now yes. you get into college very far away. Yes. Baltimore, I believe, uh, Goucher and yes, go off there. And, um, it sounds like it was not a, not a good fit. What happened?
2: No. Okay. So first of all, I just want to say I'm like massively impressed by you as an interviewer, <laughs> like the research and the thought, Thank you. like this is, I'm impressed. Thank you. Yeah. Um, So I didn't get into, like, any schools that I thought were, like, interesting. I didn't want to go to college. I When I was a junior in high school, I went to England for six months because, like I said, I was just searching for something that wasn't in school. And I was always—I love, like, I love experiences, and I guess I was searching for some experience that was going to make me feel, like— Alive, And I always felt like when I was doing what everyone else was doing, like I was really bored and I just felt like deadened. And I I think this is all sort of why I love acting. It's like it's an experiential art form. So when I was graduating from high school, I was 17 and I was like, I don't even want to go. I don't know what I want to study. I don't like school. Can I take a year off? And my parents were really like, you should go to college. Like, what else are you going to (laughs) do? And I was like, you're right. I didn't get into like any schools. I think I was waitlisted at Sarah Lawrence and then they let me in. And then I visited Sarah Lawrence and I was like, I don't know if this is for me. And I just ended up going to Goucher because they were like, play on the soccer team here. And it was something that I knew and it was something that I had been working hard on. And so I went and I was a jock. I... Worked out twice a day. I wow. hung out with all the jocks. Like, truly, like, doing deadlifts in the morning and, like, sprinting up and down stairs at night. And, like, I could do 75 push-ups in a minute and a half. Like, oh
1: <laughs> like <God>. crazy
2: <laughs> athlete person. Yeah. And I was massively depressed. Um, I actually went on antidepressants in and, and college. I became an insomniac. I was—it was—, it was you know, I was going through some personal stuff also, but I just was like, this makes me feel terrible. I don't even know why I'm in Maryland. I just, I'm not connected to anything that I'm doing. And that was when I, oh, that summer after my freshman year, I planned a trip to Europe with a girlfriend because some of my friends had done that in high school or between high school and college. And I was like, they all looked like they had fun on Facebook. I'm gonna try that. (laughs) So I went to Europe and. It sounds cheesy, but I I do remember being on a train and journaling and being like what is it that I that I that does make me happy because mm-hmm. I had a really rough year my first year in college and um I By the way, I hope when I just said I went on antidepressants, I hope that didn't sound like it was a shameful thing. I think antidepressants are a wonderful tool.
0: It's come up actually in our last episode as well. Okay, You're in good, good company. Okay, good, good. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. (laughs) God bless antidepressants. I'm going to write a pop song sometime that's a love song to them. (laughs) Um, So I was in Europe and I was like, what is it that makes me happy? And, And I like I said before, there was always this like embarrassment or shame or like, there was something about acting that I, I want, I like hid for so many years. Like I, and I always knew that I could do it. Like I was like, if I really want to do that thing, I know I can do it. Uh, like, I mean, I know I could, I, I just know there's something in me that I, I, but I was embarrassed or ashamed. I don't know. Maybe this is something I need to bring up with my therapist. But <laughs> I, and I, and so I was writing my journal on the train from one country to another Um, Romantic, cheesy, whatever you want to call this story. (laughs) And I was like, uh, I love acting so much. And I'm 18 years old. Why not try it? You know, like if I fail in two years, four years, five, like fine. I can still go back to school. But like, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: you know, shouldn't I at least try? And then I came home from the trip and I was like, mom, dad, I'm dropping out of college. (laughs) and they were like, okay. (laughs) I was going to ask
0: how that conversation goes, yeah.
2: And they were like, what are you going to do as dead?" And I was like, I'm going to go be an actress. And they were like, okay. (laughs) And, you know, I don't think there's any part of them that thought that that was an actual possibility. I think that they just saw an 18-year-old kid who wants to be an actress. There's so many of those. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, but I'm not going to move to L.A., because strategically, I don't, I don't think that makes sense. I, I, I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to apply to acting schools. So I went on the internet and found all the acting schools I could and auditioned for all of them. And I believe I got into most, if not all of them. And I ended up going to Stella Adler. And my time there, I just, like, everything inside of me opened up. And I was so, so happy. And, like, that depression that I had was gone. And and I was in New York City and I was, like, you know, out in the world. And I think the thing that I love the most about it and the thing that, like, just really fills me up is the experience. Like, just, you know, you, it's about experiencing joy and heartbreak and all the extremes of life with other people. Like, you know, we were in movement class and we'd all have to dress in black. And our teacher was this very strict former ballet dancer. And she'd make us get on the floor and roll around and bark like dogs and do Shakespeare <laughs> while we were doing it. And and it was just so fun to be in this group of like, like-minded freaks who were willing to feel things, for lack of a better way to put it.
0: This, I mean, for people who don't know, I mean, this place has great history, like Brando, Marilyn Monroe, a lot of great people came through there. I think you were doing it in the evenings. Is that right? Like the evening. Tour. So what do you do during the day then? Do you have a, you get a regular, are you waitressing? Like what do you, how, what do you do the rest of the time?
2: You know, I think the only reason I did it during the evening is because I took six months off after I dropped out of college and nannied at home and was trying to figure out which school I was going to go to. And so I started my program in January. And the only program at that school that started in January was the evening conservatory. So I was Mm -hmm. like, I just want to start right away. Let's do that. Um, And it was designed for people who uh, have other careers or jobs and, you know, want to go to acting school as well. Uh, I actually got a job at the studio and I would like stock the bathrooms with toilet paper.
0: (laughs) (laughs) For you, Those, you know, I guess you were only there. It's like a two year program. What's the biggest takeaway as you look back now, having seen what you actually use in the real world? Like, what was the greatest value of having been there?
2: My biggest takeaway Their one of their mottos is awareness without judgment, which is very like Zen. And it's about looking at things the way that they are. And if you know how things are, you can then play a character who has an actual just, like, opinion about things or a point of view. But but before that, you sort of just have to know things, like... Uh, you have to see things objectively. And that was a really valuable piece of practice, I don't know, that, yeah. I, that I learned yeah. from Stella Adler. Also... For me, it was just the love of the craft. Like, I still go to class. Um, I now take class with a teacher named Tony Greco, who teaches the method. The method Mm -hmm. is different than what I originally thought. But I am, like, so obsessed with acting. And I think that there's never, like, there's just so much to learn forever. And... You know, the other thing about, like, going to Stella Adler or going to this class that I go to, any class that you go to, you really have to look at yourself and examine yourself before you're able to play other characters. And I think that's a really valuable thing to do in order to be a good citizen or friend or girlfriend or,
0: you know. (laughs) All right. So age 20, you're done there and you now have to kind of make a decision where you go with this. The fact that you then move to L.A., basically suggests that it was not, you know, you're not thinking like, let's see if I can primarily work in theater. You knew that you wanted to do screen acting.
2: Yeah, I okay. So I had a boyfriend at the time who wanted to move to California. So the move was partially because he wanted to do that. So I was going to follow him there. Mm -hmm. But also, yeah, I think instinctively, I've always thought of myself as more of a person that make sense on screen than on stage why do you think so okay I have this superpower <laughs> where I'm really photogenic like I do I'm so much better looking on camera than I am in real life <laughs> it's true like I something about the camera just makes me pretty and I you know I've often had people look at me and be like oh, oh yeah you're like you're that person I mean and I can tell like it's like yeah yeah I know I don't look like I do on camera um <laughs> Yeah, it's just a lucky thing about my bone structure, probably. I'm I'm a real ugly person in real life, and I look like a TV star on on. camera.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, so whatever it was, you're working pretty quickly once you're back in L.A., because I guess the first thing of any, like, note would have been this recurring part on Shameless, right? Um, This is 2011, the six episodes of the first season of the show— how big a deal was it to even just get hired?
2: It was a really big deal. I mean, I I think because when I got out of acting school, I was 19, I was 20, but I looked really young. And so I was a baby, in my opinion. Now I'm like, Jesus, I was so young <laughs> with a conservatory training background. So I feel like that was sort of like a rare thing, you know, especially someone who's auditioning for like, abc and is auditioning to play a teenager didn't necessarily go to conservatory so maybe i had a leg up there and i actually the first job i ever booked was very shortly after i started auditioning i i sent out my headshot and our packet whatever resume i don't know what the hell was on my resume because i had never worked before (laughs) but i like made up i probably put in yes theater you know um (laughs) i i got a manager while i was still at stella adler because i had a very good headshot and he brought me in just on my headshot, and he started sending me auditions, and I booked a job within a month, and it was to play Melanie Linsky's daughter in a, an indie film who I am now, I've now worked with twice, and she's become a great friend of mine, and I admire her so much um, on every level, but especially as an actress. She's so incredible. It also makes no sense that I would play her daughter because I'm like 12 <laughs> years younger than her, but that's <laughs> Hollywood, and I was like I said, I looked really young. Anyways, right. I didn't have to end up doing that job because I got Shameless. And I remember uh, John Levy's the casting director for Shameless and, you know, thank no you.
0: Relation.
2: <laughs> no, no relation, <laughs> but thank you for giving me my career. And right, right. he I remember I came in for Shameless and he was like, go home and like, you look too wholesome. He was he, I think he said something like you look like you could be on the cover of a cereal box or something. <laughs> and he was like, go home. Put on some like dirtier clothes, like fuck up your hair, put on more makeup, and come back. And I remember I was like, okay, 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 okay. And I went home and I like, I I wore my boyfriend's sweatshirt at the time with like a bra underneath and was like, I'm gonna unzip this and I'm just gonna be wearing my bra and I like put on a bunch of eyeliner and like I came back in and I and on the drive home, which is which I was living on Fraternity Row in Westwood because that was the only sublet I could find. In my mom's Volvo, lying to her that I wasn't living with my boyfriend, but I was on fraternity <laughs> row in some, like, college kid's dorm room. I was driving home after the audition, and they call- my agents called me, and I got the job, and I crashed my car.
0: What? Yeah. Actually.
2: I mean, I hit a pole, but st- I was like—so to answer your question, was it a big deal? Yes. It was a huge <laughs> deal.
0: <laughs> well, and also we should say just people have to imagine what we're— you know they're they're this is all uh kind of pictures in their head if as they're listening here you did not look the way you look now when you were going into that job right
2: yeah i mean i i had short blonde hair and uh i remember Laura Wiggins was on the show and they were like you look too much like her and then i think that job is the reason why i have red hair because they dyed my hair blackish red and then it started to wash out and when I was working on that show still I went on my audition for suburgatory and I was like oh I'm trying to get my hair slowly back to blonde and they were like no keep it red
0: okay so um and you were you you felt good about that I mean it's it's one of these things about the I guess the business where it's like that's not an uncommon kind of thing I think people assume you're you're always been redhead you're Did you like, did you, was it something that was tough to give up being blonde?
2: No, I honestly don't care about hair. Like, (laughs) put it, put it something fake on there, shave it off, cut it. I don't don't care.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so why, after just that first season of Shameless, did you depart?
2: Because I got the role of Tessa Altman on the ABC sitcom Suburgatory.
0: Which... ABC, Wednesday nights, this is a big deal. It's a first leading part that you would have had, of course. And um, just to familiarize people, you're playing this sort of snarky teen who is compelled by her dad to leave the big city and move to the suburbs. And this was a part that was going to ask a lot more of you than any professional gig you'd had yet. When you sign up for a network show like that, just tell people what that actually means, what you're signing away, what you're going to now have to do.
2: So, yeah, it was a really big deal for me. I mean, Shameless was the first time I'd ever seen a movie set. It's not like I had even been an extra for fun when I was a kid. Like I, I had I've never seen a soundstage. I'd never stepped on a set until my first day on Shameless. So this was only six months later. And. You know, I think because I was so young and inexperienced and naive, it sort of worked in my favor because I didn't realize at the time what a big deal it was. Um, the testing process was super extensive. I went in to the casting director. Oh, my God, I just remembered how I got this. I went in for a general meeting at ABC, and the person I was supposed to meet, I don't know who you are out there, I don't remember, was like, uh, I, didn't, I didn't have a meeting with her. And then this woman was like, come into my office. You can talk to wow. me. And I went and talked to her, and I was wearing fry boots. And she was like, you know what? There's this script about this girl wears motorcycle boots. Can you read it right now? And she, I, she handed me the script. This sounds like I'm making this up. But like, I'm going to tell this story when I'm a grandma, and my kids are going to be this like, she's lying. <laughs> um, but I, wow. I, she gave me the script. I read Suburgatory right then and there. And read for her. It wasn't even... She's not a casting director. It wasn't an audition. It was supposed to be a general meeting. I read the lines, and she was like, I'm going to set you up with an audition for this part. I'm going to find out who this person's name is and tell you before.
0: Yeah, please. So we can
2: give her credit. But (laughs) (laughs) um, anyways, I auditioned um, many times. I auditioned for Emily Kapnick, the creator. Then the testing process, where you go... Like, I, I went to Warner Brothers, and... Peter Roth and many other executives, like you go into their office, all the girls are lined up outside. You've already signed your deal. So that was the first time I'd ever really like learned about that, which is like, here's a well, six what you year mean contract. is you've signed the
0: deal that if they want you, you're on the hook now. Yeah, you, there's no backing out.
2: Yes. Oh, for also, seven years. Also. Yes. I remember <laughs> right before this. Also, I had tested for an Allen ball pilot he made okay. a show called All Signs of Death, or a pilot of All Signs of Death, and I had just tested for that, and I didn't get the part, and I was devastated. Mm-hmm. And so I go into this—so this was my second test deal, probably. I go, and I sign the contract, I, probably six or seven years— I got paid diddly squat, which I at the time was so 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 right. much money, and I'm right. I'm so proud. But like I look, back, whatever. i sh- Maybe I should yeah. say that it wasn't Diddly squat. <laughs> it was a lot of money. Um, I'm so grateful. And anyways, I I found out I got the part, and I remember being silent on the phone, and my agents were like Jane. You're allowed to be excited. Like, this is a big deal. And I was like, oh, OK. Like, I. <laughs> yeah, great. I'm so excited. And then I look back and I'm just like so grateful for Emily Kapnick. Like, I feel it was so cool. But
0: wait, so your kind of muted reaction was not getting that it was a big deal? Or what was that about?
2: I guess. Yeah, I think it was not getting what a big deal it was.
0: hmm. So. The person who you were just starting to talk about when I interrupted you, I apologize, is the showrunner of that show, Emily Kapnick. And you have said that one of the things that made that a, a very positive experience, that show for you, was the fact that she was running it. There's sort of a, that it's not just a woman, but a feminist and somebody who's approaching things in a way that, from what I gather, has not always been the case on things that you've worked on. So- Talk about just that and, and how the person at the top can really set the tone for the whole show.
2: Yeah, she is so talented. Uh, I look back at that show and I and I remember just so many funny lines and what a cast she brought together. I remember at the time doing interviews with like Liz Merriweather and Zoe Deschanel and me and Emily and them asking me questions about. What it means to be on a show and being the lead as a woman and having a showrunner as a woman and really being an infant in terms of like knowing about feminism and in this industry, like just being so unaware of the mm, misogyny and I I didn't know. I remember being like, I don't know what to say. And now I look back and I'm like, wow. Wow. That There's so many reasons why that show is cool. I mean, I just, you know, I grew up with a mother who never taught me, not even consciously, I don't think, that my value as a woman is what I like look like. I just, that was never um, something that was ingrained in me. And I feel like Emily was the same, where it wasn't like let's make this show to show everyone that girls can lead a show and can be funny and don't have to be super skinny. It was just like, of course, that's the case, you know, <laughs> but that is radical. And she, she did find me out of like, you know, a bunch of girls with a lot of TV career. Like, I remember the girl who tested against me has this big TV career and she picked me. And I just feel like I owe her a lot, basically, is what I'm trying to get at. Thank you. Thank you, Emily.
0: Well, so you had three great seasons, 57 episodes. You described it as really, you know, a pivotal time because, you know, you get some experience, you get visibility in the the business. People are now thinking of you in terms of being a lead on things. So when May 9th, 2014 comes along and the network pulls the plug on the show, was that a surprise for you? Was, how, does that, how did you take that? Did you think, like, there goes my shot? Or no, was that, I, or did you, yeah?
2: It wasn't a surprise because when they picked us up for a third season, they picked us up for half order, and that was sort of an indicator that, you know, maybe the show wasn't doing as well in terms of viewership. I know that things have changed massively since then, and now it's less about those Nielsen numbers, I think. Um, but I was working on monster trucks. Actually, I was in Vancouver, where I am now, when I got the phone call from Emily and I sort of knew it was coming and I was sad to say goodbye. But, you know, three seasons of a TV show is a success, in my opinion.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And probably the right length. Most of the time, these things go on too long, I think. Yeah. Um, All right. So it was, I guess, another thing that probably made you feel not you know, despondent or whatever when your show is ended is that during the run, I guess during your off seasons, you had started to do more movies, including the first of the two most kind of notable ones, I guess, which both happen to be from the horror genre and both happen to be directed by the same person. And so I wonder if you can just tell us about how that, you know, all came about in the first place. I mean, horror is a kind of specific skill set I've had. Actually, people, you know, come on this podcast and say, you know, people poo-poo my early roles in, in horror because they think it's just silly. But to make a movie like that work is actually more demanding than a lot of other things for for actors. So anyway, I just wonder, first, 2013 is the reimagining of Evil Dead and then 2016 is Don't Breathe, both of which had a lot of skeptical people going in and then had a lot of people that really liked them. So just how that came about with the same director and and what that's like for you.
2: Yeah, I mean, my coach always likes to say this story, which I don't know if it's true or not, but it's about um, this pandemic really has my brain turning into nothingness. <laughs> like I just about to say something all the time and I'm like, do I have a brain anymore? Um <laughs> What's her name from Ghostbusters? Uh, Ghostbusters from freaking Alien. Uh,
0: Sigourney Weaver.
2: Duh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, is, okay. <laughs> supposedly, Sigourney Weaver was out of acting school and she was an incredibly trained actor. She went to Juilliard or something, right? I think Yale? Yale, Yale, yeah, yeah, yeah. She went to Yale and she got this B movie script of Alien <laughs> and she made like, but she studied Macbeth, so she made her part like. She made Macbeth, whatever. She used Macbeth as like the starting point for Alien and she's incredible and I admire her so much even though I can't remember her name but it has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with her. It has (laughs) to do with my my problems. Um, So when I was finishing uh, season one of Suburgatory, I read that they were making the remake of Evil Dead and I believe I wrote to my agents and I said, can I be in this movie? Because I thought it would be fun. Like there was something like, I have, the, a, I have a perverted sense of humor, and I like, I guess I like scary movies. I, I didn't really realize that until I was, like, in them, and people were like, do you like them? And I was like, yeah, I guess I really do. So I remember writing to my agents, and they were like, mm, the lead's already cast. It's Lily Collins. And I was like, I don't care. I'll play another part. And they were like, okay. And then they were like, oh, guess what? Lily Collins dropped out. And they're looking for a new lead. And I was like, okay, can I audition? And they were like, yeah, here's your audition. (laughs) And I remember reading it and being like, wow, this is going to be so fun. Like, what a ridiculous thing. And also so different than what I've been doing. Like, I want to play. And so I went to the audition and I got the part. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And I went to New Zealand and I shot the movie. (laughs) And it was a really terrible experience. And I remember... Talking to um, one of our producers, Rob Tapper, who produced the originals with Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell, and he was like, yeah, it's miserable. Like, (laughs) uh, I've talked about it a lot, but physically and emotionally, psychologically, it takes a toll when every day you're covered in prosthetics in the rain, freezing cold, screaming and crying for your life, getting buried alive, chopping your tongue in half, ripping your <laughs> arm off. Like uh, like the uh, all right. it was awful. Um, but I'm proud of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it opened uh, at South by Southwest. People went in there saying, you know, how dare you have a female lead instead of the male character and meanwhile came away really into it. Yeah. So that was the first one. Yeah. And then the same director, you're back with uh, three years later for Don't Breathe.
2: Yeah. So he called me two weeks before shooting was supposed to start or three weeks before su- shooting was supposed to start and said, hey, like, I'm trying to make this movie. I can't find the lead actress. And people loved you in Evil Dead. I loved your performance. Come do this again with me. And I was like, OK and i got on a plane and went to budapest and shot the movie 3 weeks later
0: wow wow and hopefully a little less uh, grueling uh, experience but
2: yeah um, I, I mean have you seen it
0: i have not seen don't breathe okay. i have did see evil dead yeah
2: well there's a there's a pretty gruel- there's a pretty terrible thing that happens in that movie but we don't have to go there.
0: <laughs> well, well, just now you've piqued my curiosity. You don't have to get into detail, but like, what you get? Something uh, happens to your character?
2: Maybe you know. I mean, it's just like I. The, the, when every time I tell this story, I'm like, I can't believe this is my life. That this is something <laughs> that I said yes to. Um, I was hung upside down in a harness in a basement, and almost, and my pants are cut. And then he attempts to inseminate me with a turkey baster full of his semen.
0: Jesus. Well, did you know that was that was in the script when you sign up? Hey, you know. Well, so I'm getting we're getting a nod uh, that yeah, a nod yes. Yep. Hey, you know. This is my
2: uh... legacy, Scott. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Listen, uh, I will have to I will have to catch up with that one, I guess. But Mm, okay, Okay, so (laughs) my
2: aunt took my 90-something-year-old grandmother to see that movie. Yep, but she loved it supposedly. (laughs)
0: Uh, I will get back to you on that. So, (laughs) all right. So, (laughs) all right. So that was 2016, 2017. We're making our way to the president, but it's just interesting. Like even some of the things that, that don't pan out, for instance, there's a, I believe you did a pilot for Amazon with Glenn Close. You and she are like the two stars called Sea Oak and it didn't get picked up.
2: Not only with Glenn Close. It okay. was written by George Saunders and directed by Hiro Murai. And if you, if people listening don't know who George Saunders is, he's like one of the greatest living authors. Arguably, uh, he has like the Booker T Award. What's it called? Yeah, dome yeah, yeah. dome actress <laughs> knows literary awards. Not no, okay. Uh, he right. he wrote yeah Lincoln in the Bardo. That that was his first um, novel. Mostly wrote short stories. Hero directs for uh, Atlanta, and he's done many music videos. And he, um, what's the movie he made with Rihanna? And
0: yeah, the Guava <laughs> Something Island. Something
2: right? bad has to happen to me because I didn't know. <laughs> I, yeah, my brain. Okay. Um, anyways, it was. So, and by the way, nah, Not only am I working with Glenn Close, Glenn Close is a dies a virgin. This, she's my Aunt Bernie, and she dies a virgin at age 60, 70, whatever, and crawls back from her grave because she's like, fuck this. I'm going to get laid. And she has these, like, <laughs> idiotic nieces and nephews that live with her, me, Jack Quaid, and Ray Gray. J- Ray and I have babies, and uh, Jack works as, like—he a. He sort of is like a— he works at like a peep show where, like, mm-hmm. it's hard to explain. Anyways, she comes crawling back from the dead to be like, fuck you motherfuckers, shape <laughs> up and get me laid. And like, there's a scene with like Glenn Close like spitting her teeth and dirt on the floor, screaming at. I actually, I'm gonna talk to Jack tomorrow. And I was like, do you, I was gonna say, do you remember working with <laughs> Glenn Close? <laughs> like, do you remember her as a zombie screaming at us? It oh was. My God. It was, like, the. I think it's the the coolest thing I've ever made. And it didn't get picked up, and nobody saw it.
0: Were you surprised it didn't get picked up, or did you think it was going to be a tough sell?
2: Well, supposedly, I hope this is true, and I'm not just, like, making things up, but I think it was the most expensive half-hour comedy Amazon had ever made. Wow. And I think it might have been too weird to spend that much money on it. Yeah. But, damn.
0: That would have been interesting. That yeah. But would have would have probably precluded some of the other things we're going to come to so you know the alternate history but the other thing that year was an episode of twin peaks mm. which is has its own kind of cult following and um interesting group of people i would think
2: yeah i'm a massive fan of the series of david lynch i made a uh, the self tape I made was when I was in Budapest shooting Don't Breathe and all you're supposed to do like I guess either you go into the casting director and you have a conversation with her and they film it or you just tape yourself talking so I just made a tape of myself talking about my favorite movies and I got a response that was like they like you there's a pin in you and then seven or eight months later I got a phone call when I was eating Indian food and they were like do you want to be on Twin Peaks tomorrow? And I was like, "Aha!" huh what? And they were like, do you want to be on Twin Peaks tomorrow? And I was like, uh, yeah. And my agents were yeah. like, we can't guarantee you're even going to have a line. And I was like, I don't fucking care.
0: Yeah, it's Twin Peaks. Yeah. I have
2: one line, by the way.
0: Hey, you know what? It's, <laughs> I think it was, they, 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 you know, there's this thing lately and it's happened again for 2020 with like small acts, the Steve McQueen thing, where it's technically a TV thing, but it's showing up on top 10 lists of best movies. And, Twin Peaks was everywhere in that in that uh, that year. But uh, anyway, the last pre Zoe thing we got to talk about is what if which another amazing thing where it's you and a great actress, Renee Zellweger, when you're when you're at work, are, are you able to sort of whether it's Glenn Close or Renee Zellweger or whoever, are you able to kind of process and retain things that they're doing that maybe you could apply or is it just sort of you're so in the moment with what you've got to do that it's hard to hard to do that
2: when it when it comes to like acting I'm not sure that I am like oh that's amazing acting and I'm gonna try Mm -hmm. that like it's like (laughs) (laughs) but more like how they act as like people on set and like Glenn Close like Even her dead body getting carried away in a stretcher was her. When she falls down these steps in the beginning, that was her. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, that's someone who's just really loves the process still, you know, and is, like, very available to her crew and her director and her castmates. And I really admired that in her. I was terrified of her, to be honest. I mean, she was supposed to be terrifying to me. And also I'm just like, holy shit, you're going close. Um, With Renee as well, like— she has no pretension she drives a minivan she doesn't have an assistant or a team she would just sort of like float in and out of set and like i have a problem where i get like i sometimes i get overwhelmed with everything happening off screen that i'm like where's my energy to like like I'm so worried about relationships and like making sure everything's in order that like I'm like oh god the most important thing is like getting everything on camera like but you know you become you start working with people for so many hours a day they become sort of like your family and like everyone starts eating each other's shit (laughs) (laughs) anyways I was I was really impressed by Renee Zellweger as like a movie star she was just so kind. She also was very present when she needed to be, but she definitely had like boundaries that I just respected. I was like, Oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. Mm -hmm. Take a note.
0: So the other thing that I'm going to just bring up in relation to this, because you have mentioned it and it's got some pickup and I think it's maybe valuable for people to young people in the business to, just be aware of. We talked about a very positive, you know, the value of maybe a a feminist feeling set with Emily Kapnick. Then there was an experience keeping in mind, I believe this is all like post me too. And all the things that are supposed to have made our industry better and friendlier and more aware and all that. You recently commented about something that happened there where it did not feel that way.
2: Yeah. I tweeted that um, because I was supporting my friend, Samantha Ware, who was on the show when she was talking about microaggressions on set. In her experience, she was talking about a different show and people were criticizing her, scrutinizing what she said. And so the reason I tweeted what I tweeted, which was this experience I had and that Samantha came to my aid was just in support of her. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I also feel like it's important to share these experiences because they make actresses feel less alone or less gaslit and crazy when mm, sexist, misogynistic things happen to them. And, you know, even I remember listening to an interview with Jennifer Lawrence and something that she said a producer, a woman producer did to her, and it was so helpful for me because this experience that I tweeted about is just one of many terrible things that have happened to me in this business. And really
0: already, even even being as relatively new to it in the sense that, like, your career is essentially the past decade still. I mean, that's I know you've done a lot and all of that, but you would think, you know, it's not the battle 90s or whatever when. Certain things, you know, like people might think this is like way in the past and the stuff that you're the one incident that you did talk about was some a direct, I guess, a director being in. a. I don't know how to characterize. It. I don't know if you want to characterize it, but basically, I guess
2: it's like you could say it's harassment. I don't know. He yeah. his name is Philip Noyce. He directed most of our show or the first three episodes or something. We were in a camera test and. I walked out in a dress and he screamed in front of everybody, like not even to me. Like, I don't know who he was talking to. Like, why do her breasts look so small? You know, usually. And I think he said something like usually she is such a beautiful figure, which was supposed to be like a way to either like compliment me and sort of like downplay what he had just said by like. But I'm like, I don't want that compliment either. And and so he was like, can somebody get her a padded bra? You know, it's like. One thing to maybe aside say to the costume director, which I still actually think would probably be inappropriate, but, you know, directors, it's a visual medium and directors want what they want. But for him to yell about my body like that was like mortifying. And so I walked off set, put on a padded bra, came back and he was like, much better and I like walked to my seat and I remember Samantha being like are you okay and at the time I was like it's not that big of a deal but then I went into my trailer and I like cried for like so hard and I remember being like it's not that big of a deal but then convincing myself that even though it was really hurtful and embarrassing and shameful and like all of the thi- like it just made me feel also like that's not a way to set up an environment where someone can be a great actor, you know, because acting is about being vulnerable and knowing you have to know that you're safe. And anyways, but you're saying
0: you've had a lot of things like that.
2: Yeah. I mean, yes, I've had like, and, and, and I've, it's only recently that I've realized like how bad (laughs) it is, you know? And it's like, I just said, it's just like a, such a stupid way to behave because, you want to make something good you know that idea of like harassing actresses and so that they're good at horror films is like so insulting so juvenile and like so untrue I think the way to make great stuff is to make people feel like protected and safe Mm -hmm. you know
0: Mm -hmm. wow well I'm sorry you've had to deal with all that Uh, I mean yeah hopefully people are, you know, the the thing that I guess we're seeing in the broader society this week after whatever happened like a week and a day ago is the, the best deterrent of bad behavior is maybe to just call out and embarrass the people who do it. And then, you, so you know, it's interesting.
2: So. I actually just tweeted this morning. I was listening to Brene Brown's podcast and she was talking about shame and she was talking about accountability and like. I really liked what she was saying because we can shame people, but that might actually not fix the problem. Most likely that's not going to fix anything. You know, these people are already full of shame. Um, When you act a way that's like abusive, it's probably because you're suffering shame. But it is really important to hold ourselves and to hold others accountable. You know, like I, by the way, like I've been so angry in my life that all I want to do is like shame people um, but and done that uh, I'm not saying I listen to this podcast and this is who I am I just was like listening to it and I was like oh I want to practice that because I do want the world to be better I do want you know I don't you know cancel culture is flawed I don't think that we should it's I think it's important and it's and it's and it's a result of like the the imbalance of power and the abuses that have gone on forever um but i don't think that the end goal is to just cancel 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 people so that they can never exist anymore like i i would love it if people could take accountability and like suffer consequences for actions but be able to like change you know and be better and have a second chance or whatever like yeah so me that's saying Philip's voice is a name is not necessarily for me to be like burn Philip, but I do think it's important to, and by the way, when I tweeted that, Warner Brothers took it very seriously, and like people contacted me and I don't want to press charges. Like I don't think he deserves to go to jail or never work again, but I do think that he should be held accountable for saying something that's so unprofessional in my opinion.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you wouldn't go into uh, your tax accountant's office and (laughs) say something like, I hope, maybe he would. (laughs) Right. All right. Anyway, so it is pilot season 2019. You are now, I guess, open for work because what if was going to be a limited thing. And how do you first hear about this project that has become Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist?
2: It's another experience where I read about it. I remember reading that the show was picked up and Paul Feig was originally supposed to direct it. And I remember taking note of it. And I actually want to search in my emails because I think I might have written to my agents about it. And then they just came to me in the end of January 2019 and said, we have an offer on a show that we think you'll probably like. And
0: A straight-up offer or an offer to audition? Or what was the... A
2: straight-up offer. I had just done What If, which is like... A melodrama, and I was really excited about the idea of like a joyful project and a comedy. Like, I I like doing comedy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I guess maybe before we go any further, if you wouldn't mind setting up, let's pretend that somebody's listening to this who hasn't watched any of the show yet. Can you just give like a a, a little tease of of what the show? deals with it also why it's so personal for the guy who hired you austin winsberg who's the showrunner, and uh has his own connection to the subject matter
2: you know it's funny i every time i start to give a synopsis of the show i think to myself okay this time i'm gonna make it real tight (laughs) i'm gonna make it make a lot of sense and then i always end up rambling but i'll try
0: you do whatever you want to do
2: okay (laughs) um (laughs) Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist is about a young woman named Zoe, played by me, who is a coder in San Francisco, and when we meet her, she has a father that is suffering from a rare neurological condition called progressive supranuclear palsy, and I guess the easiest way to describe it is kind of like Lou Gehrig's, your brain and muscles deteriorate and eventually you're not able to speak or move or um like breathe swallow so we meet her and she's suffering some headaches so she goes to get an mri because she's worried i don't know maybe this is a genetic condition i don't want to have what my dad has and while she's in the mri there's an earthquake in san francisco and when she leaves the doctor's office, she starts walking down the street and she can suddenly hear people singing to her. And then she slowly realizes that they're not singing out loud. She's the only one that can hear it. And they, she's actually reading their minds. But instead of them talking to her, they she reads their minds through song and dance numbers. That was pretty quick.
0: That's great. And, <laughs> and I think it, it, it really does also capture the fact that there is a lot of you know, it deals with serious, you know, sometimes heavy stuff, but in a way that is still fun and joyful and with a point. So and the reason that it exists is because Austin's had his own version of this. Right.
2: Yeah. Our showrunner, Austin Winsberg's father, passed away a few years ago from this condition. And I and when he was losing his father, he thought, like, what if like, we, the, the hard part about this is that you can't communicate with your loved one, you know, and and I think that's what's so beautiful about our story is that you watch Zoe be able to connect with her father again through this superpower. And I that's where Austin got this idea was yeah. through the tragedy that happened in his life.
0: So what do you think it was? You've, you've kind of talked about the fact that when you met Austin, who has giving you this straight up offer for the part. He didn't seem to really know much about you or your background, and yet he's entrusting his whole, at that point, I guess, pilot to you. How do you f- figure that out?
2: Yeah, I make fun of him and our producers sometimes because I remember that meal. And I remember being like, yeah, I just wrapped this show on Netflix. And they were like, oh, really? And I'm like, yeah, like, isn't that why you hired me? Like, Renee Zellweger was in it. And they're like, oh, wow, that's cool. And I'm like, OK, but... But 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 why do you want me? You know, and I'm sure that I just am on this list. I mean, I've already led a network show. And um, like Austin says, this part had to check boxes. And I have sung in projects before. So he knows I can sing. Not sure if I can sung
0: in in which
2: Um, I sang in Suburgatory. But I also was in this very bizarre um, independent movie called Bang Bang Baby that went to TIFF in 2014. So there's recordings of me singing. I can carry a tune. He knows I can do that. He knows I can do comedy. And I guess he knew I could do drama. I don't know. I don't know how he knew these things, but well, he knew. And you,
0: and you danced, I guess, as a kid.
2: Yes. Right. But, but the thing is, at the beginning, it was unclear how much Zoe was going to partake, but he knew he needed every time someone auditions for the show, he makes sure that they can sing at least a little yeah. bit. And so in my mind, I just, I think that I was just on some list, you know, like those lists exist that studios are like, we're down to hire this person. And I, you know, I think on all sides, it's just been like, beshert is the Yiddish word, right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. like the, it, it's kismet. Um, You know, I didn't really know that the show was going to be what it was. I don't think Austin really knew that I had the abilities that I ended up being able to do like an episode like we
0: did you you have any doubt that you would be able to yes carry this you did
2: um yes yes (laughs) I mean I was scared I'm you know it's a lot of responsibility and I care a lot um so yes and no like I think there's part of me that's like absolutely of course I know I can do this and then there's part of me that's like no you can't no you can't run away no you can't (laughs) but it's just been such a pleasure for me, like because I, I had no idea when I signed on um, that the show was going to be what it is. Like, I, yeah, you know, it's it's a collaboration between the rest of the cast and the songs that we borrow, and the choreography, and the cinematography, and the directors, and the writing. It's like a beautiful collaboration that really worked. You know, when I I've said this before, but when I read the script and I was like, I remember texting May Whitman, who's my best friend, and I was like, you know, this scene where he sings true colors like I don't think I can handle some strange man singing that to me like I'm cringing right now you know (laughs) and and then and then when I made it it's it's like one of the most pivotal scenes I think in the series especially because it's in the pilot and you know there is something about our show that is like radically earnest and I think that you know my judgmental self could sometimes be like, oh, this is cheesy. But I think my response by calling something cheesy is just actually embarrassment about how much it actually affects me. And what's really special about our show is we just lean into that, you know? And it's like, we allow our set, like, I feel like while watching our show, you can laugh, you can cry, you can cringe, you can swoon, you can dream. Like, but we don't lean away from the sincerity, which you know, I guess like Austin talks about the tone, like one degree this way, it could be extra cheesy. One degree this way, it could be flat. And it's something that I I'm proud of as a group that like people's genuine vulnerable hearts are put into this show. And I think that's why it's affecting.
0: Well, and it's I think people should also know how hard you guys work in the sense that season one, I believe mostly was in Canada, some somewhat in San Fran, but six months to make one season. Is that right? And just like, you're the lead, you're not only the lead of a show, which you've been before, but you're the lead of a show where you're going to be involved with every scene. I mean, if other people are singing or dancing, it's because your character's involved and imagining it. But, um, but then you have your own that you do. And I guess I just wonder if you can break down for people, what just physically that's like, Generally, to be doing something over six months, but specifically, let's take a, a musical number that you you pick one. Like, what's the process from start to finish of turning something around?
2: Yeah, okay, so it's a lot of work. I mean, we, most shows that are an hour long get eight days to shoot. We get eight days to shoot, yet we have to do six musical numbers in there as well. And I, last year, was in practically every single scene, besides just being on camera like i have to go to fittings i have to do adr i have to record the music i have to rehearse i have to get my hair cut i have to get my hair dyed i have to get my extensions put in i have like there's so much i have to do outside of work like i was like i was just like bursting last year it was like every minute of my whole life for 6 months was zoe's like weekends everything It was very um, time consuming. And then for Mandy, she has to choreograph and put up eight number or six numbers every episode. It's like it's 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 a lot of work. Um, So, like, for example, episode eight, I my character uh, performed every single number.
0: This is Zoe's extraordinary glitch where basically I don't want to give anything away. But, yeah, I mean, seven numbers, right? For one
2: episode. I think, six, I think
0: six. Six or so. Okay.
2: And so for me, we ended up having to take, I think, three days off of shooting. Everyone went on vacation except for Jane and Mandy and <laughs> Austin. And, um, you know, three days to learn six numbers is also really not that much. Um, and the way Mandy works is really amazing and collaborative where she, she works with the actor. And so it's very... Um, It's not like she comes up with the moves and she says, learn them. We sit there and we talk about what the character is going through. Why is this going to be a comedic number? I mean, I I could talk about this for so long, but it's it's a we have to pre-record the songs. Once the songs are pre-recorded, we or if we have like a demo of somebody else singing it, we can start crafting the number. I would say most musical numbers get. Two to five rehearsals, two would be very little. And then I'm also in every number because I, uh, my the superpower comes from me. So I watch them, which is kind of why it's a little disappointing. Like this year, especially, I've been like, I really wish Zoe could partake in the numbers in uh, new ways because you know, there's, there's been a 90, we shot 97 so far, like, we need to advance her relationship with this thing. But it's hard, because there's no time for me to go into the rehearsal room. So I always have to learn my movements on the day. So I can't really do anything that intricate. Anyways, it's a it's a very time consuming job. Thank God. I mean, I have like limitless energy. I'm like somebody who's like, (laughs) bouncing off the walls. So it's it's a good fit for me.
0: That actually brings up something I wanted to ask you, because I, I came across in another interview with you, I thought the guy had a, had a good question, which is, I'm just going to quote it back. So, Zoe is the only one who can see other people singing, so her reactions are crucial to the scene. How do you keep watching performances interesting? How do you make sure not to go too broad as she's listening, or go so soft that she seems detached, close quote. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's its own challenge, I guess.
2: Well, I have, like, a a heady response, and I hope it doesn't sound too pretentious when I talk about my process. But I, you know, I felt from the very beginning of this show that it, for us to really, like, believe that this is happening, something physical has to happen to zoe it's like you know when a when a superpower turns when a super what are they called superhero <laughs> super. <laughs> when a superhero turns into the Hulk or whatever like there's a physical transformation, and I felt like there there has to be and also it can't just be like because like we haven't really gone into explaining what this power means or who it came from but for me, Jane, I have like very specific ideas about that Um, and I think it was very much related to losing her father, getting this power but, you know, I, I think that all these songs come from Zoe because it's from her brain so I'm like First of all, I'm very much affected by music, like we all are. So there's actual music playing when I'm reacting, and something's happening to me. I'm watching—if it's not my co-star doing it, there's someone standing in doing the move. So I'm watching somebody experience something to this music. Usually it's my co-star's amazing singing voice. And for me, I always think about, like, why would Zoe sing this song? (laughs) You know? And I know she's not. They are. But this superpower obviously has to do with her path as a human being. And most of the time she's learning basically empathy or like her empathetic muscle in her body is opening more if there is that. So I guess I, I, I think of it as Zoe's like a projector. And she starts to have this like sensation that comes over her, like, "Oh, I'm going to hear an art song." And what she's projecting is that musical number. So I feel like it's happening to Zoe, also. You know? Yeah,
0: no, I, I love that. I, I think it's a great.
2: Again, I sound like a
0: makes sense. I don't know, makes sense. Um, so you mentioned your co-stars, and in season one, that was Peter Gallagher as your dad, Mary Steenburgen as your mom, Lauren Graham as your boss, and. I don't want to, again, if people are going to just start the show because they heard this, I don't want to give away too much. But I I mean, you, you've talked about with Peter Gallagher, really, I guess, of the songs that you perform on the show the in season one, the ones that you did with him were some of the really special ones to you. Um, you mentioned True Colors, but there's also How Do I Live, which is a Diane Warren song. Um, there's a, one without music that you guys have. You know, so I'd be curious anything you want to say about Peter, anything you want to say about Mary. But then Lauren was particularly interesting to me because here's somebody who has previously been at the center of her own big show, Gilmore Girls, and is now in a supporting role, um, almost like a surrogate mother in some ways to this character. And also, it sounds like to Jane, right? So, anyway. Go off on those three if you feel like it.
2: Yeah, I mean, when I just heard you say it again, I was like, damn, I'm so lucky. Um, I grew up watching The O.C. and Sandy Cohen was like my generation's fantasy father. So, like, I already had that, like, feeling about him where I have, like, always wished he was my dad, basically. (laughs) Um, And, you know... To me, my favorite part of the show is the connection between Zoe and her dad um, because I think it's so universal. Duh. Like, we all, even if we don't have a dad or if we don't have parents in the traditional sense, we all know what it's like to want, like, parental comfort and affection and connection. And so I feel like that, that, through line with the show made it really special, you know? Like, a lot of people when the show was first coming out, they were like, oh, it's just another Glee or it's just another network show trying to be a musical. But I think it's it's more than that, and and people came to realize when they started watching the show. And um, I just... What was really cool about these musical numbers with Peter is I'm an actor, like, I wasn't a musical theater person, so I came to this really only knowing about acting. And... You know, at first I was like, oh, I got to, like, learn how to sing and dance like my co-stars. And then I was like, no, I don't. I just want to be able to use that expression to, like, deepen my acting or, like, my performance to, like... So so with, these, with the musical numbers I did with Peter, I feel like we really nailed that combo where it's, like, using song and dance to tell the story. Not just using song and dance to be able to sing really well or dance really well, which, by the way, I love watching. and But to be able to do it in this way that is, like, feels, like, authentically happening in the moment and it just is, like, a richer exploration of grief, you know, by using song and dance. Like, that is so cool. And Peter is such a great scene partner. I mean, I just, he, he felt... I just had the paternal vibes from him. He's a great actor and he's a great person. And I felt like he cared about me. And those scenes were just, yeah, like uh, scenes I think I'll never forget shooting. Um, Mm -hmm. Mary is, I mean, a legend. And I just watched her in um, Happiest Season. And I was like, Mary, you're the funniest part of that movie. And also the fact that you can go from our show to that and Last Man on Earth. And like she can do anything. And it's just also really inspiring to watch someone at her age be down to try something so new and vulnerable, like dancing and singing on camera, like that is radical. And then Lauren, uh, I've met, I'm Lauren and I were friends before because of May Whitman. We share a mutual best friend. Um, May played Lauren's daughter on Parenthood. And um, I remember when we were shooting the pilot, there was a different actress cast as uh, joan and great actress wasn't quite right for the part and i remember after we shot the pilot there was talks about her being recast and i was sitting at lunch with lauren and i was like i think you should play the part and she was like me no i can't play a mean <laughs> boss and also like <laughs> no and then i remember she texted me that night and was like i'm just like thinking about like sliding across desks doing a musical number and i was like awesome lauren graham and then it wow was like,
0: so you you made that happen <laughs> well, i didn't I don't know that know if i made
2: it happen but i did suggest it and then it was like can we get lauren graham like all yeah. you know and and anyway she ended up doing it which was like a wild treat on so many levels um people adore her for good reason and she was so funny as joan like she really made that character it was written as like a scary mean boss and i think the way that she made that character like unhinged is so funny and like awkward and like how she wants to be friends with zoe but like i think we talked about this on in our conversation right with Mm zag i think anyways um and then yes i was struggling last year because i was so tired and like my sleep was all messed up and my adrenal glands stopped working and what are adrenal glands? I don't know. I just heard that those are something that helps you have energy. (laughs) But she would give me a lot of advice. Um, And she really was there for me and I am eternally grateful. And yeah, I mean, as people, as actors, we all know how amazing they are. And then as people, Mary, Peter and Lauren are just... (sighs) Really
0: lovely. Well, and I think part of the cool thing of the way that season ended with American Pie is to just see everyone come together in what is technically got to be just the most daunting thing to basically have a oneer, like one continuous shot. Everybody's got to contribute their lines properly. I don't, I, I don't know how many takes you guys did, but it, it's worth whatever effort. You know, it just, I think it's terrific one of the best moments of
2: yeah it was really special it wasn't actually a lot of takes i mean mandy takes her job damn seriously and by the time that it's t- we're shooting she has rehearsed that like every which way she has the- it down like this season i'm like wow we shoot musical numbers so fast because she's like so prepared american pie was yeah so so cool damn
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) All right. So here we are. It's the last minute. I'm going to just sort of do five rapid fire, just big picture, what comes to your mind. Season two obviously started rolling out earlier this month. You guys made it during the pandemic, from what I understand. Why do you think the show, whether I think people even now are catching up, particularly with season one or recently, like during the pandemic, they have been catching up with it. Do you think there's something about people seeing it during the pandemic that makes them respond to it more than they otherwise would.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I I mean, we had no idea when we were making the show season one, um, about a girl grieving that it was gonna come out when everybody was collectively grieving. Um, you know, I think that also one, we need new content. I mean I do. I'm like, I've watched it all. And <laughs> and two, we want I, I think we want something that makes you feel uplifted, or like I said before, can make you laugh, cry, swoon, dance. Like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a show full of heart and being there. Definitely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So if season again, without giving away plot in case there's people catching up season one, basically was, I don't know, I guess about, um, dealing with the fear of something terrible happening season two I think it would be fair to say from what we've seen of it is dealing with the aftermath of something happening. Um, how would you synopsize, like compare and contrast the, the two experiences for, for you?
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't think it's that much of a spoiler to say that, um, you know, the whole first season is basically like a, a warming up to say goodbye to someone, you know, and we say goodbye at the end of season one and season two is, How do we move forward after a great loss?
0: Yeah. Did you find one season easier or harder? I mean, I guess the experience is going to have to have been so different based on the pandemic now as a factor for you guys.
2: Yeah, I mean— last year I was so tired and like all I wanted was a time to take a nap. And this year I'm like, I've been home for so long. All I want to do is go to work and distract yeah, myself. You yeah, know, I feel yeah. like so goddamn lucky to have this job right now. Um, many people are out of work. I'm so grateful to have a job. But two, it's like I just get to go do something with my brain all day long instead of look at the news and yeah. eat myself to
0: death. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much All right. So number three of five, the other thing during this pandemic, and we did talk about this before, but I, I mean, it's really kind of hard to stop thinking about is that obviously theater is gone for now. Hopefully, you know, it's going to be a while, but like, in the meantime, if you want to see musical theater, you're going to get it from Zoe's extraordinary playlist. Do you think that that's factored into this where, I mean, obviously there's a huge, audience for this kind of stuff normally it it collectively i mean broadway makes more money than all of the new york sports teams combined just that's one city in the country so there are many people who can't be in new york for theater and musical theater who crave it and so i guess just that aspect of it that you guys are really the the thing that's keeping it alive in a sense
2: man i haven't thought about it like that i I don't have anything to say (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, I mean, yeah, that makes me feel honored and sad. And I really hope, I hope, I hope yeah, sooner so that rather than later, yeah. you know.
0: So that's number four is that let's say Broadway comes back a year from now or whatever it is, hopefully sooner rather than later. Somebody calls you up now that they've seen you do Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. They know you can sing. They know you can dance. Um, and they say, hey, it's your off season. We want you to come do a a limited engagement, as they call it. That's where they get all the movie and TV stars to come in there for like eight weeks and do something. Would you do a musical on Broadway?
2: Absolutely. I'd I have a lot of work cut out for me. I mean, I'll tell you, I gotta yeah. put on those dance <laughs> shoes and go to those singing lessons, but I, and I'd be very terrified. But I, absolutely, I, I would do that.
0: Okay, people are listening. I know some some of them uh, are from the Broadway community, and then finally. This is now, the show went on, show debuted in what month of last year? The season one went on the air.
2: Well, January was episode one and then episode two came out in February and then continued from there. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, it's now been a year that people have been consuming this and getting to know you if they hadn't already seen, let's say, Suburgatory or something else. I mean, this has got to be your biggest audience yet. How has it, at the end of the day, and I know the pandemic, again, probably changes the answer from what it would have been, but how do you feel that being on this show has affected you personally, just being out, out in the world, do you when you when we could do that, and and just the way people interact with you? And then professionally, do you find that it's already opened up other doors?
2: I I feel like maybe professionally it is opening up more doors, and- I'm grateful for that um it hasn't changed my personal life in any way like i, I don't i'm not I don't really get recognized um also I wear masks uh, also I don't leave the house um, but i Mostly, like, when you were just talking, I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Like, there's something that starts happening in my chest where I'm just like, yeah, I this this show means so much to me. And this part means so much to me. And I, I wish I had, like, an eloquent way to, like, sum it up. But um, it's, like, it's a life-changing experience in, in so many ways that maybe I'll be able to talk about it better once it's over. But, like, right now I'm in the midst of it and just, like, I I really love it.
0: Well, can't thank you enough for this and for the show, which has been so fun. And now I feel like we're uh, Twitter pals. I enjoy following your Twitter. And uh, I just hope people will catch up on the show if they aren't already. And uh, thank you again. Really, Yeah,
2: I just want to say thank you, though. Like your support really means a lot. And this was so lovely. And I'm happy to get to know you. And thank you.
0: We just want to note that The Hollywood Reporter offered Philip Noyce an opportunity to respond to the comments made by Jane Levy during this podcast, and he sent us the following statement, quote, while I don't recall the incident as Jane Levy described during costume selection for What If?, I am deeply sorry for any pain or humiliation I caused her, and for that I sincerely apologize, close quote. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter.